0: Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 8, 38 through 41. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Someone once said that human beings can live for 40 days without food, and we can live for four days without water, and we can live four minutes without air, but we can't live four seconds without hope. I don't know if that's actually true or not, but it sounded really beautiful as I was studying this past week. (laughs) Hope is um, absolutely vital for us, though. I think we'd all agree on that, whether it's four seconds or, or what. It's absolutely vital for every single one of us to thrive and flourish. It doesn't matter what season of life you're in. If you don't have hope, you're not going to thrive. You're not going to flourish. And yet I think even though we needed every single season, I think this past year I felt that need significantly. Maybe you did as well. Probably more than any other year in my entire lifetime that I feel a really tangible and vital need to have something to look forward to, to cling on to that could get me beyond what was going on all around me. Do you guys feel that at all? I mean, we had this global pandemic and really everything that came along with it. And I think about the suffering in our own family here because of the pandemic and the loss of jobs and the loss of security and income and routine, the loss of health. Some of you lost loved ones. Uh, we suffered. suffered because of this pandemic. If that weren't enough, though, I mean, 2020, goodness, all of the social unrest that just got added into the mix, that just, if you thought that the ground was solid around you, you know, like everything just began to crumble. I mean, riots in our cities and um, just all kinds of un- unjust killings, insurrection at the Capitol, trouble at the border, mass shootings. People getting canceled left and right. I'm just waiting for my turn. It's going to happen at some point. Um, Religious liberty under attack, on and on it goes. Honestly, guys, you cannot watch the daily news cycle without either feeling depressed, really terrified, or just full of rage. (laughs) Or maybe all three of them like together. So this is kind of where we've been the the last year. And I, I honestly can't think of an Easter in my lifetime where there was a more desperate need for hope. Now, when I talk about hope, I'm not talking about the kind of hope that says, man, I really hope Baylor wins tomorrow so that I win my bracket and I get some money. That's a superficial kind of hope. You know, I hope it it doesn't rain today. Thank you, it didn't rain today, Lord. That's awesome. Um, I'm talking about a hope that Is so much deeper than that. I'm talking about a hope that's strong enough and that's sure enough to get us through any sorrow. Doesn't matter if everything else around us is crumbling, it can get us through any fear, can get us through any anxiety, any doubt that plagues our lives. And that's the hope of Easter. The hope of Easter is a hope that transcends evil. It's a hope that transcends suffering. It's a hope that transcends sorrow and pain. And that's why I'm so excited that today is Easter. Because it's the day that we, we just get to celebrate that. We get to meditate on it. We get to marvel at it. Now, if this is your church, we celebrate Easter every Sunday. Um, if this isn't your church, you should come back. <laughs> because this is every Sunday for us. We, celebrate, we rehearse the gospel every single Sunday, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Every single Sunday we do that. In fact, the reason we meet on Sundays is because back in the first century, the apostles started gathering the church together on Sunday just to remember that Jesus rose on a Sunday. So this is what we do every single week. And, and yet, today, we're going to really do it. <laughs> today, we're going to really meditate on it and really marvel at the hope that we have because of the resurrection. Um, you know, I, I think about the hope that people have had, or that maybe the hope that you're clinging on to today, but if you think about the last 2,000 years, you know what people haven't gathered to celebrate and say? Like, I don't think anyone has gathered for the last 2,000 years and said, the vaccine production has risen, and then everyone's been like, it has risen indeed. <laughs> they haven't gathered to say, my political party has risen, and everyone's like, it has risen Indeed. They haven't said my social reach has risen or my employment rate has risen or the GDP has risen or the value of my 401k has risen. No, of course not. For the last 2,000 years, the people of God have been gathering together saying one thing. Jesus Christ is risen. And then you get to say, he is risen indeed. Jesus Christ is risen in the midst of the most difficult times of poverty and disease, hardship and pain for the last 2,000 years, this has been the hope that humanity has clung to. It's got us through. Now, the way I want us to celebrate Easter today is by going back to the book of Jonah. Um, we've been in Jonah for the last month, and so if you've been here, this is going to be kind of a 30,000 foot view of Jonah because Jonah actually isn't a story about a fish. Isn't that cool? you thought it was. Jonah isn't a story primarily about a prodigal prophet. Jonah isn't even primarily a story about a rebellious nation. Jonah at its core is a story about Jesus. And it's actually a story about the resurrection. And so let's look back at, at a portion of the text that Cheryl just read for us in Matthew 12. If you, if you haven't turned there in your Bibles yet, go ahead and get there in Matthew 12. Like I said, this is going to be a 30,000 foot view. So we're going to be A little bit all over the place today, but this is where we're going. Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. That's a mic drop moment, by the way. I mean, we should feel that. That's, that's a pretty profound thing to say. Something greater than Jonah is here. This is a book about Jesus. You see, Jonah is actually a shadow or a type of Jesus. Did you know that every story in the entire Bible is about Jesus? Um, from Genesis to Revelation, it's all about Jesus, And this is the really beautiful thing. Jonah in his rebellion, Jonah in his disobedience, Jonah as a prophet who really stunk at his job, is a shadow pointing us to Jesus. And so Jesus is now standing in front of these scribes and and Pharisees, and they're like, give us a sign. (laughs) We won't believe in you unless you give us another sign. And and Jesus is like, "You, you want a sign? Let me take you back to that book of Jonah. That's the sign. Just as he was three days and three nights in the belly of a fish, it's going to happen to me, and then you'll know. So what I want to do today is we marvel at the resurrection, as we think about Easter, and we again, praise Jesus for all that He did for us, I want to talk about what it means that something greater than Jonah is here. What does it mean that Jesus is, is the better Jonah? And there are three really specific and beautiful things that I want to show you, and you're going to see how this is all about Easter as we go along. But first, if you're taking notes, Jesus is better than Jonah. Jesus is greater than Jonah because in his life, he was the greater mediator. Now, we all know what a mediator is, right? Yes, you can nod. It's okay. (laughs) I know it's rhetorical, but you can still nod. It it, it makes me feel a little bit better. so, so when two people or when two groups of people are in a conflict, what happens? A mediator steps in. A mediator tries to help them work things out because they can't work things out. They're, they have irreconcilable differences, right? And so they need to call someone in who can kind of be the go-between, who can stand in the gap, as it were, and get the message from over here and then take the message over here and back and forth until things are mediated right? Now, usually when there's a mediator, there's a need for a mediator. In our lives, at least, um, usually both parties are at fault. I mean, you can, you can see this, right? As the saying goes, there are two sides to every story. I've learned this so much in ministry. I'll have someone come into my office and just like pour out their heart and soul and, and gush their feelings about this situation, how awful this person is, and all of the drama that they've caused. And I'm like ready to go to war for this person. I'm like, how could they? And then, and then I go to talk to that person and I hear their side of the story and I'm like, oh, how could they? There's always two sides to every story. And so whenever we need a mediator, that's how it goes. I, ha- I have a son and I have two daughters and, and Nicholas is sitting here and he's a great boy and he loves Jesus and hopefully that love is just gonna continue to grow and grow and grow. Um, but I've learned this as a dad too. This is just how it goes. Someone takes a toy And you're ready to discipline, and then they realize, well, they took it first. And it's back, well, which which happened first? Nine times out of ten, when we need mediation, it's because both of us aren't acting like Jesus. Here's the thing, though, about our need for a a greater mediator than, than Jonah. When it comes to our conflict with God, which, by the way, we have a conflict with God. Let's just start there. When it comes to our conflict with God and the war that is currently being waged right now, both sides are not on speaking terms. There's a massive need for a go-between to help resolve the conflict, and yet, none of it's God's fault. Our conflict with God exists because of our open rebellion against God. It exists because we don't want to recognize his authority and we don't want to relinquish our own autonomy. And so these are irreconcilable differences. I'm having a really hard time saying that word. So there's a conflict and we need a mediator. We're not on speaking terms, not because God doesn't want to talk to us, but because we're like the little kid who puts our hands over our ears and is like, ah, I can't, and we walk away from God. Because when God says, this is what it takes to be in my family, this is what it takes to be a, my, my father, this is what it takes to be on good standing with me, we, we don't want to hear it. Because it means we're not God. In the book of Jonah, we see this conflict hit an all-time high with the great city of Nineveh. Now, again, if you haven't been here with us for the past month... Um, If if you would, go back and listen to the the first one, I think, because I talk about Nineveh. I'm not going to have time to get back into it today, but Nineveh was like the worst city on the face of the planet. Think of ISIS times 100. It was a terrorist state, brutal, violent, wicked, demon-worshiping city. And so... This conflict between Nineveh and God has reached an all-time high. It's about to go nuclear. God is about to wipe them off the face of the planet. They're wicked beyond comparison. They're brutal beyond comprehension. And now the stench of their evil, as Jonah 1 says, the stench of their evil has made its way up to God. And he's about to act. He's got to destroy them. And so if anyone needed someone to mediate for them, To to go back and forth between them and God, it was the city of Nineveh, these Assyrians. And so God called Jonah to do that. I want you to go mediate for me. Rise up, Jonah, because the stench of their evil has come up before me and I can't stand it. So you need to go tell them that I'm going to destroy them if they don't repent in 40 days. I need you to be the mediator. And Jonah says, no. Guys, in Jonah's mind, the Assyrians were too wicked They were too evil. They were too brutal. They had done too much to ever be reconciled to God. And so he ran away. Then, after being tossed back and forth by this raging sea and and this wind that God hurled at his escape boat, he tells the sailors to throw him overboard. They throw him overboard. He's drowning. A giant fish comes, swallows him, him up Three days later, regurgitates him. Then after all of that, God says, okay, now are you ready to go? Now are you ready to be the mediator? And he's like, okay, fine, I'll go. Reluctant, not pumped about it, as we'll see in a couple of weeks in chapter four. He's actually really ticked about it, but he goes. But Here's the thing that that we need to see, guys. This is the thing I want you to see ultimately about Jesus, and we're going to get to it. Jonah couldn't bear the thought of sinners being brought back to God. He could not stomach the idea of wicked people receiving mercy. He viewed the Assyrians with contempt for all they had done to him and his people, and he actually longed to see their destruction. Can you relate to that? Of course. We, we saw this in, in our first session. We're all Jonah. Jonah. Yeah, he finally obeyed God. Yeah, he finally took God's message of mercy to the city. But you better believe he wasn't going to pretend to enjoy it. And so he had this three-day journey throughout Nineveh, where he's going from house to house, knocking on the doors. Repent, God's going to destroy you. Repent, God's going to destroy you. Repent, God's going to destroy you. For three days, this is what he did. And then by the time he was done, word got all the way to the king and the city repent. Guys, I would imagine that the whole time he was doing this, he was holding his nose. Like, cause they, their stench would have been bad to him as well. I mean, figuratively, you get what I'm saying, right? It's like I, I love my, my my kids, but um, have you ever changed a poop before? So when that happens, the love is there, but like you, you're like arm's length like away. It's gag reflex. It's yes, I'm gonna do this for you, but oh goodness, like I hope I hope you get what I'm saying. Um, arms length away, I bet he was trying to avoid eye contact the whole time. Like I'm not, I I don't even recognize your humanity. I think a lot of us think that that's how Jesus approaches us. By the way, can I just say that? Yeah, Jesus loves us, and yeah, He wants to make us better. Or yeah, he wants to heal us, and he wants to fix us, and he wants to save us, but it's almost like he comes at us like this, like, oh, goodness, if I, if I wipe you up a little bit, then I can, okay, now we can hug. You ever think of Jesus like that? And yet, yeah, this, this isn't Jesus at all. In fact, this is why Jesus is so much better than Jonah. In the midst of our stench, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our rebellion, he didn't look at us with contempt what, what does the gospel show us? He looked at us with compassion. He didn't write us off as a lost cause. He actually wrote himself into human history so that he could save us. When God said go, Jesus said, yes, so look at how 1 Timothy 2, 5 uh, and 6 puts it. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself... As a ransom for all. Jonah couldn't stand the thought of sinners forgiven. Jesus couldn't stand the thought of sinners condemned. Massive difference. And so he went to the worst of the worst. He didn't hold his nose. He didn't keep everyone at an arm's length. He didn't avoid eye contact. He welcomed them into his presence with open arms. He touched the lepers who were unclean. He embraced the outcasts that society rejected. He welcomed the undesirables into his presence, which back then included women and children. He said, let the children come to me. Women are in his inner circle. It was unheard of in the first century he ate with prostitutes, he drank with traitors, he invited an assassin, a political assassin into his inner circle, Simon the Zealot. (laughs) What's he doing? Guys, Jesus spent so much time with the dregs of society that eventually he got the nickname, the friend of sinners, and it wasn't meant to be a compliment. He went to where they were. He loved them where they were. And then he showed them how to get out of where they were so that they could be with him forever. That's what he did as a mediator. I read this story this past week about a group of eight Christians who felt called to stand in the gap for people in the worst neighborhood in Sacramento. It's a neighborhood called Detroit Boulevard. It's notorious for its crime. Um, every house in this neighborhood is a house of danger. So this group of eight people decided to just walk through this neighborhood and as they walked, they'd stop in front of each house and they'd pray over the house. Every time they prayed over the house, they felt the weight of oppression being lifted and lightened. At one point in time, a woman came out and berated them and and they told her that they were there praying. And she said, I need healing. And so they prayed for her to be healed, and she was healed on the spot. And so they did this for some time. A year passed, months after that passed. And then finally they were like, you know what, we need to move into this neighborhood. And so this group of eight Christians packed up, sold everything they had, and moved into Detroit Boulevard. And they started a little church, which they, they called Detroit Life Church. All the life churches are just great. Um. They became friends with their neighbors. They, they welcomed their neighbors into their homes. They found ways to serve them. They found ways to care for them and show them that they loved them. Week after week, month after month, they prayed for them and they prayed with them and the whole time they were appointing them to Jesus. They were mediators between God and men. Get this, I love this. After two years of ministry in Detroit Boulevard, the Sacramento Bee, which is a local paper, reported that between 2013 and 2014, there had been zero homicides, zero robberies, and zero sex crimes in the entire neighborhood. Because they stood in the gap. They answered the call. Guys, Jonah Couldn't stand the thought of all of the sin that was being committed in Nineveh. Jesus couldn't stand the plight of the people who were trapped in it. And that includes you. That includes me. Again, what Scripture shows us over and over again is that we are the Assyrians, we are the Ninevites. Whereas Jonah would only see criminals, Jesus saw sheep without a shepherd and so he moved and he became like us so that we could become like him and live with him forever. So this is the first principle. Where Jonah failed, Jesus succeeded. And so he is the greater mediator. All right, that leads to the second way that Jesus is greater than Jonah. In his death, Jesus was the greater substitute. In his death, Jesus was the greater substitute. Now in chapter one of Jonah, we see that even though he's rebelling against God, even though he's trying to do everything he can to run away from God, he's actually going to the farthest place on the map away from God. In the midst of all that, in his moment of crisis, he still offers up his life so that the sailors might be saved. This is good of Jonah. We can... You can applaud him for this. Look at it with me in in Jonah chapter one verses eleven through fifteen. They said to him, "What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us?" For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, "Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it's because of me that this tempest has come upon you." Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they couldn't, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from raging. Jonah says, throw me into the sea, so that it will be well for you. Essentially, what he's saying is, right now, guys, you're dying for me, but I should actually be the one dying for you. And so, if you throw me into the waves, you'll be saved. He's sacrificing his life for theirs. He's taking on the role of the scapegoat. He's becoming their substitute. If you know anything about the Bible, this is the Bible over and over and over and over and over again. When Jesus says that he's the greater Jonah, immediately this is where our minds should go. Like when I, when I read that passage in, in Jonah 1, when I was studying leading up to this, immediately I thought of Christ. See, just as Jonah was sacrificed to save the sailors, who was Jesus sacrificed to save? Sinners! Sinners! us and yet unlike Jonah Jesus was without sin and this is where it gets really incredible because you see while Jonah's sacrifice was motivated by his own guilt Christ's sacrifice was motivated by his perfect love he who knew no sin took sin on himself and became the scapegoat for all humanity just as Jonah bore the wrath of God in the sea, Jesus bore the sea of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to throw me into the sea so that you might be saved. Guys, we need to stop here just for a minute because we need to try to fathom the weight of the agony and the pain of what this moment was like for Jesus. Have you ever thought about what it must have been like for Jesus to be thrown into the waves of God's wrath? We're talking about the cross right now, by the way. No one has ever experienced in the history of mankind a greater, deeper, more intense level of pain than the hell that Christ was experiencing as he hung on the cross. In that moment, guys, Jesus, as he was hanging on the cross, as he was carrying all of the sin and all of the guilt and all of the shame that has ever been committed and ever been experienced in the history of the world, as he hung there, he experienced something he had never experienced for all eternity. And that was separation from his father. In that moment, he was forsaken. In that moment, he was rejected. In that moment, he was condemned by the one who had loved him and showered him with grace and kindness and blessing for all eternity. And he cries out, you remember, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to think about it this way. If after this service today, if one of you comes up to me and says, you know what, Ben, I've had enough. I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you again. We're done. I'd probably feel pretty bad. Not going to lie. I, uh, I got thick skin, but I probably wouldn't sleep tonight. I might shed a tear. Maybe two, if you're lucky. No, I would feel really bad, right? If, if anyone said that to you, you'd feel bad about it. But think about it like this. If my wife were to come up to me and say, you know what, Benjamin, because she calls me by my real name, I never want to see you again. I never want to talk to you again. We're done. Well, I don't have to worry about that happening. Let me just say that. But I don't know how I would respond to that. That would be devastating. I'd probably fall to my knees. I'd definitely ugly cry. Um, I'd probably binge eat a lot my life would be devastated. Why? Here's what I want you to see. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the more intimate the love, the greater the torment of that love's loss. So when you think about what it meant for Christ to be forsaken by his Father on the cross, In order to get the full weight of it, we've got to think about it in terms of the love that they had for each other and that they had shared together for all eternity. Ephesians 1 tells us that Jesus, all he had ever known for all eternity was this deep and intimate and unbroken love. When we sin, the love's broken. When we sin, we don't feel it. He doesn't stop loving us, but we act as if we, we don't love him, right? So every time we sin, it's as if we're putting up a wall, and then we confess the sin, hopefully daily, probably m- many times a day, at least once a week if you come to this church. What we're doing when we confess sin is we're removing the walls that we've built because of our sins so that we can again feel intimacy with him. It's always there, but we just don't feel it. Jesus never felt that. You know when you sin against something? Caroline and I were talking about this this past week because she's studying Jonah too. It's great when it works out that way. She brought this to me, so I got a cider. Whenever you sin against someone, you know that sick feeling that you get in your gut of like, oh man, I really messed up and I got, we're going to have to talk through this, and I'm going to have to ask for forgiveness, and I really hope they forgive me. You know what I'm talking about? It's just this nauseating feeling. Jesus never felt that. Jesus never knew what sin felt like. He never knew what it was like to wrong someone, to hurt someone, to offend someone, to lie to someone, to gossip. Have you ever gossiped about someone and had it found out? How bad that makes you feel? It, oh, man. He, he never experienced any of that. And then all of a sudden, in one moment, all of your sin, everything you ever committed, the stuff that you knew about, the stuff that you felt sick about, the stuff that no one else knows about, every single human in the history of the world, every single sin that has ever been committed in one moment was hurled on him. And he felt it for the first time. We cannot fathom that. And then every wall that you've ever built that separated you from the love and the intimacy and the fellowship of God immediately went up because all of that sin was on him and his father turned his back on him for the first time in all eternity. And now he's been thrown into the sea of God's justice except he doesn't deserve it. There had never been a moment in all of eternity that they had not been bound together, and yet on the cross, that bond was severed. Now, if you're anything like me, maybe you think to yourself, you ask yourself, you ask yourself, why in the world did God have to do this in order to bring us back to himself? You ever ask that? Why would God need to reject his son? Why would he need someone to die for us in order to have our sins forgiven? I mean, just think about it. If somebody sinned against you, and then they came to you and asked for forgiveness, you wouldn't be like, you know what, I'll forgive you, but go kill your dog first. If they have a cat, maybe. Definitely not a dog, not fluffy. Not fluffy. Could you imagine your neighbor coming over to ask for forgiveness for letting their dog um, relieve itself in your yard, which is our issue with our neighbors, and, and, uh, and you requiring the death of that dog before you could talk to them again? Yeah, I forgive you, but Fluffy's got to pay the price. It's the only way. Who does that? Why would God require the death of his son In order to forgive us? Here's the answer. If you write anything down today, write this down. Choosing to forgive somebody always means choosing to absorb the cost of the injustice they've committed. I'm gonna say it again. Choosing to forgive somebody always means choosing to absorb the cost of the injustice of what they've committed. Think about it like this. Imagine that you stole my car. You have to really use your imagination because my car is not worth stealing. You know, (laughs) for the sake of this, let's just imagine I've got a Lamborghini. Let's just say it's worth over a million dollars. This will help a lot. Um, Let's say you steal my million dollar Lamborghini. But you don't just steal it In your carelessness, you actually wreck it. And you wreck it, and you don't have insurance, and you certainly don't have a million dollars to pay for it, but it's wrecked. And so you come to me, and you're like, I'm so sorry. I stole your car, and it's wrecked. Now, at that moment, I have two options. Option one is I can make you pay for it. I could drag you to court. I could get the judge to set up a payment plan. And if you're anything like me, you'd be paying off that million dollars for the rest of your life. You would be in debt for the rest of your life. You would be in my debt always. That's option one. Now, option two would be much better for you, much worse for me. And that would be forgiveness. Here's the thing about forgiveness if I choose to forgive you, if I choose to say, you know what, I'm not going to take you to court. Let's just forget that this ever happened. I'm choosing to absorb the cost of your mistake. Now I got to pay to fix my car or I got to buy a whole new car. It's another million dollars out of my endless bank account. I have to absorb it. Your debt is wiped out, but not just because no one had to pay it, but because I said I would pay it and I would pay it in full. You guys see what I'm, I'm saying here? It's not because there's nothing to pay. It's because I've absorbed it. That's how forgiveness always works. Guys, forgiveness always comes with a cost. If you've ever tried to forgive anyone, you know that. That's why it's so hard. Because you are absorbing justice. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the penalty, the cost, the payment for that sin. It's not a million dollars. It's not a little bit of jail time. It's not a couple of Hail, Hail Marys. It's not going to Mass. It's death. That is the cost of our sin. Romans 5.12, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. Guys, this is what you have to see if we're ever going to be forgiven. Someone has to absorb the death that our sin earned for us. It's the only way. That's why Christ had to die. If we were ever going to be brought back to God, he was going to have to pay the penalty in full. Do you see that? There was no other way. Isaiah 53.5 says it this way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. But by his wounds, we are healed. I oh, love how the old hymn writer once put it in, in the song. Man of sorrows, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, helpless, and lost were we. Blameless Lamb of God was he, sacrificed to set us free. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guys, in his death, Jesus was the greater substitute. Finally, in his resurrection, Jesus is the greater deliverer. Look back at Matthew 12, verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man three days and three nights be in the heart of the earth. Jonah didn't know it at the time. Believe me, he did not know it. But do you know why God allowed Jonah to stay in the belly of the fish for three days and and three nights before raising him up again? It's so that he could be a sign pointing to the Messiah's death. That's why. When Jesus says, behold, something greater than Jonah is here. He's saying, behold, you're about to witness a greater resurrection. You're about to witness an even greater victory. You're about to experience an even greater deliverance. That's what he's saying. See, Jonah's sacrifice calmed the storm, but Christ's sacrifice will calm all storms. Jonah's resurrection led to the salvation of a city. Christ's resurrection has now led to the salvation of the world. You see, in Jonah's resurrection, God conquered Jonah. (laughs) In Christ's resurrection, God conquered death itself. As we've already read, I'm going to read it again in 1 Corinthians 15. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope of Easter, guys. This is the hope of all hopes. That in Christ, God has destroyed destruction. In Christ, God has broken brokenness. In Christ, God has killed death. It's the hope of Easter. And we can build our entire lives on this hope. Amen? First Peter 1.3 says it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We just sang that. What's our living hope? That we've been born again because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Guys, Peter is writing to Christians at Rome and they are suffering immense persecution and essentially what he's saying is everything is crumbling all around you. Nothing makes sense. There's nothing solid to put your foot on, but you can have hope because Christ has risen from the dead. It's a hope that transcends every situation. Jesus was thrown into the only storm that could sink us. I want you to really believe that. There's only one storm in the world that can actually sink you. Do you know what it is? It's the storm of eternal justice that your sin has earned for you. That's the only storm that can sink you. Jesus has calmed it. And one day he's gonna return and he's gonna calm every other storm. He's gonna redeem everything. He's gonna heal everything. Everything that was broken by the curse of sin and death. He is our living hope. Guys, if you can get that, if you can let that get all the way into your heart, that it sinks in so much that it actually takes over your whole being, it'll change your life. You'll actually know what it means to have a hope and a joy and a peace that can't be touched by this world. He loves you. He cares for you. He proved that with his life and death. But even more than that, he's actually powerful enough to raise you from the dead, bring you back to the Father, and give you eternal life. And he proved that with his resurrection. Amen? He is the greater Jonah. He is the greater mediator. He is the greater substitute. And his resurrection has proved that he is the greater deliverer. And so today, as we celebrate him and as we worship and as we praise him for all that he's done, we do it with hearts that are full of hope. Would you stand as we close and respond together?